Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Breed is people! <laughs> my sister and my daughter! What's in the box? Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and we are here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Avengers Infinity War, the new Marvel Palooza, starring hundreds of familiar and beloved Marvel characters. Here to talk about this uh, infinite movie with me are Forrest Wickman, Slate culture editor. Hello, Forrest. Hey, Dana. And joining us from Slate's DC office is Jonathan Fisher, a senior editor at Slate. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, how's it going? Pretty well. So are you guys ready? This is going to be a big one. Yeah, I mean, I've been waiting for this for two days because I've hardly talked about the ending with anyone. You haven't been waiting for it for 10 years, Forrest? I've been... John, I think that I think that's you. I've, I've, I've been getting ready for this for for the last nineteen movies. Well, yeah, I should say that one reason we're having Jonathan on is because you're one of our resident Marvel completists, right? You've seen, you say, all of the eighteen movies leading up to this. I have from from Iron Man on. Yeah, they're for, just to clarify, yeah, this is the tenth anniversary of. I, I mean, they were saying at the at the beginning of the movie, it's the tenth anniversary of Marvel movies, but of course, the Tobey Maguire Spider Men precede this. Well, it's the tenth anniversary of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which started with Iron Man. So right, previous, that was the Big Bang. Right. So previously, there have been, of course, other movies based on the Marvel comics, but they haven't been part of this universe. So they've known. Would you say has the company known since ten years ago that they were going to work toward this cycle, or was it only because the movies were such a success that they decided to? branch out. I mean, I think it's inevitably contingent, but I, I believe, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, but the ori- the original Iron Man famously ended with that uh, post-credit stinger where Nick Fury shows up, played by Samuel L. Jackson, and says, like, I'd like to invite you to join the Avengers or whatever, which start, you know, that launched this whole universe. Of course, if, if the original Iron Man had flopped, I don't know if they necessarily would have uh, moved forward at this scale. Um yeah. Okay. So I, I forgot that that was already right. The Avengers, the seed was already planted in the very first of these movies. So yeah, it's been going on since 2008. Um, and I, I have to say, I've missed a few in there, which at the time I wasn't really aware of whether I was missing them or not. But then when you get to some some moment like this in the cycle that's sort of gathering them all together, I realize there's some real lacunae in my Marvel knowledge. So I'm glad Jonathan's here to fill them in. Yeah. I mean, I think I have seen all of them. And yet there are still moments in this movie where... I guess we can just start spoiling. For example, Red Skull shows up on a distant planet in the middle of nowhere, and I have no idea how to explain that, but I'm guessing that... The villain you know, the from the Captain between, America movies, you mean. Yeah, and, and you know, John knows the comics in a way that I don't at all, so perhaps he will be able to explain some of those things that even the movies don't really explain very thoroughly. I mean, I think it, it depends on what level of, like, or, like, what standard of, like, uh, physics and, uh, you know, whatever you want to apply to, to Marvel. I mean, it... Uh, it it may or may not make sense, um, but I think probably to fans who have been invested all along, it was probably uh, a nice little uh, uh, payoff. 
Well, I'm going to do my traditional thing. And before we start going through the story, just ask the two of you, you know, how, how you came out. Would you send your, your best friend to spend two hours and 40 minutes if you include the credit sequence, which, of course, you have to watch in a Marvel movie so that you can watch the obligatory stinger at the end. Would you send them to see this movie, Forrest? Uh, yeah, I would give this movie, I, I, I guess, like four out of six Infinity Stones. Um, it is totally less than the sum of its parts. Its structure is basically just like checking off a series of boxes. But those parts are generally pretty good, I would say. Um, and then, you know, at the end, it goes somewhere that is genuinely surprising and kind of shakes up the formula for these movies a little bit it doesn't necessarily shake up the formula if you count how the comics work um but i had never seen a movie that ended you know quite this way save something like maybe empire strikes back yeah i can't wait to get to the ending because to me it was essentially the only interesting part of the movie and yeah. uh, as, as i said to you afterwards or maybe i was just tweeting this just i thought that i wasn't going to stay for the credit sequence the whole time because i was just resentful of how long the whole thing was taking and you know, I don't know if I'm going to see the next movie or not. Do I really need it set up? I'm really hungry. I just I was not planning on say, staying through the credits. But after that ending, hell yeah, I wanted to see what was being set up for next time. Yeah, I think people are just like desperate for hope through those credits. Jonathan, what about you? General overall reaction, good or bad? Yeah, I, I had a five Infinity Stone experience, I thought. You know, there were some probably inevitable frustrations, mostly because of how much stuff they tried to cram in. But, you know, generally, I, I thought it was, you know, if not, it, you know, it wasn't the best Marvel movie or the best Avengers movie uh, by any stretch. But, you know, it was it was thrilling. It was fun. It did more for me than just check off boxes. And while I have uh, – while I'm not sure that the, like, genuinely thrilling ending will result in some actual changes to the overall Marvel formula – which I think we're stuck with probably for another 10 years of movies. Right. But despite that, I, I, I you know, I, I yeah, I, I thought I thought it was I, I, I thought it was very good. And I thought while it's true that all of the character development, uh, you know, you had if you came, if you came for, you know, character development, that was what the last 18 movies were for. I did think that it moved me in a few surprising and edifying ways, which we'll definitely get into. Let's get into that. Okay. But before we do, also, I just want to set up who made the movie because the makers all have some history with Marvel and you guys are going to be more clear than me on what it is. So the brothers, Joe and Anthony Russo, were the directors. What else have they done in the universe? Yeah. So they so did. Go ahead. Uh, uh, sure. Yeah. They did the last. Uh, they did the second and the third Captain America movies. They did uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, which a lot of people loved, including me, um, for its... Uh, you know, the way it kind of evoked uh, the spy thrillers of the 70s. Uh, that was probably one of the best ones in the whole franchise. And then they did uh, uh, Captain America Civil War, which was really an Avengers movie. That was two years ago. And that sort of did the work of uh, breaking up the Avengers. They they battled against each other, uh, which which uh, sets up some of the, the conflicts that exist going into this movie. And what about the writers, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely? They are also Captain America veterans, right? Yeah, so that yeah, they've worked on kind of various franchises. All of these guys, like I think Joe and Anthony Russo came from TV, and I think they're very skilled at coming in and like tweaking the formula just a little bit, but not like imposing a particularly strong sensibility of their own. So I think that's true of both these directors and these screenwriters. And I agree with John. I think the you know second and third Captain America movies are among the best, if not the best, of all of these movies. 
Okay, so with a movie like this, I think it's kind of hopeless to go in chronological order and restore everything. I think we should sort of go story by story and and establish all the storylines we're following in this movie. But we can start with where the movie begins. Or even just stone by stone. I feel like that's almost (laughs) the only way to go through this movie. I mean, that's what I meant, I think, really by checking off boxes. Of course, this this movie has to check off a number of boxes and that it has to, like, give a each beloved character at least one key scene or whatever although it doesn't really give any of them <laughs> much of an arc but but mostly the structure of this movie is just like thanos collects one power stone then on to the next one it's, um, yeah what's what's impressive is like not only does it cram in like 30 characters it has not one but six different macguffins yeah Right. Well, in case you happen to be watching this movie without having followed anything in the universe so far, can we establish what the Infinity Stones are? Since they are the MacGuffin of the movie? Sure. Yeah, I can take this. Um, And I think this is, you know, more evidence that they've been planning this for a long time. Um, The Infinity Stones are these cosmic, magical objects that um, have been appearing in the Marvel movies, I think all the way back to the first Captain America movie. Yeah. and basically what they are is, you know, each each of them, I think they, they were created by the Big Bang in, in the universe and each of them controls, you know, some different aspect of, of the universe. There's a reality stone, a power stone, a time mind stone. stone. Yep. Time stone, mind stone, soul stone. Um, space stone. Remember. Space stone. The space right. stone, which is the Tesseract, which or it's at least it's part of the Tesseract, which I think you're correct. The Tesseract first appears in the first Captain America and then later shows up in the first Avengers. And unlike in, say, Wrinkle in Time, where a Tesseract is sort of an effect in space, which I think is what the word was originally coined. It's right. I mean, it's at least a kind of conjectural idea of, you know, what some 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 sort of like event, right? But the Tesseract in these movies in good Marvel style of everything just being sort of like a glowing material object is just a cube. And a funny moment at the beginning of this movie is when Thanos, the villain, who we'll talk more about, finally gets the Tesseract, this long sought after thing. He just crack, he immediately cracks it and it breaks into shards and all he cares about is this tiny little glowing stone inside. So it was really just a a stone holder. A.O. Scott has a great line in his his review of of Infinity War about, about the stones and how they look like something you've been meaning to give away that your child got at a birthday party when she was seven. They really do remind me of something you would just get at Claire's and your kid would hot glue them onto a crown or something. They're just cheap little colored jewels. Yeah, I think Sam Adams in uh, his review for Slate compared them to Fruity Pebbles, which is almost (laughs) exactly what they look like. I really want to talk about Thanos because he's actually my favorite Marvel villain that I can think of. I think he's one of the high points of this movie. But let's let's get to where we are at the very beginning of the movie in in time and space. Um, Do you want to take that one, Jonathan? Sure. Yeah. So... um... At the beginning of the movie, we, we're out in space, um, and we hear a distress signal from the, uh, I think they call it the Asgardian refugee vessel, but basically it's the, um, at the end of the last Thor movie, Thor Ragnarok, which was um, kind of a goofy uh, and apparently consequential blast, uh, they, the the survivors of Asgard, who are uh, these sort of like space gods based on the North mythology, uh, they've escaped their their world, which was destroyed, and they're out in space, led by Thor and his brother Loki. Um, and in between then and now, we quickly learn in the, in the beginning of uh, Avengers: Infinity War, they've encountered Thanos. He's basically killed all of them, uh, and he is torturing um, Thor and Loki to to get his hands on the Tesseract. Um, what it is is the uh, the second of six Infinity Stones. He already has the first. Um, which which he... th- that just happened like off screen, right? The first one is the 
power stone from Guardians of the Galaxy, and I think he just uh, defeated the planet where it was stored in some off-screen event. Is that right? Yeah, at some point they say, yeah, he got that one last week. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess they just didn't bother with that, which is fine. That's a um, hole they can fill in with another whole movie later on, just travel back to that time. Right. Five battles for five stones was enough. Yeah, I think that's right. Um But anyway, so in this opening scene, he gets the second stone. He kills uh, Heimdall, who's the Asgardian played by Idris Elba, who's in the movie for four minutes. Uh, Can I just say quickly, like, I was initially very disappointed and concerned that the first, this was like a literal case of the black guy is always the first one to die. Yeah, the same one, the same thing struck me. I felt, and and I think, like, black people do a really disproportionate amount of the suffering in this movie when, when we get to Wakanda later. But then by the end of the movie, it was like, oh... Uh, spoiler alert, almost everybody in the movie dies, so maybe it's not quite as bad as I initially feared. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. But um, it is also true that a major white character dies in the very first scene, too, and that's Loki, right? The, the, which is, I think, the the biggest surprising death maybe in this movie because he's been a really constant presence throughout. Right. And then we get this this line, well, I guess it's from Thanos, who says something like, no ex- no resurrections this time, which at the time was like, okay, this is cool. Like they're breaking up the formula a little bit. But then by the end of the movie, there is so much death that it's clear that like, actually, there are going to be quite a lot of resurrections. They're just going to happen in the next movie. Uh, And I think basically anytime we use the word dies in this discussion, we should consider it being in scare quotes. Yeah, I'm very curious about that. And we'll we'll get to the ending and, and who actually is dead at that point and, and who has some sort of reversible death situation. But okay, so so as we set it up, then Thanos has two of his little gimcrack gems. Loki is dead. And how does Thor get out of there? Uh, well, actually, first, we should probably say that uh, they have the Hulk with them because the Hulk was in the last Thor movie for reasons that don't matter. Uh, but the, uh, the Hulk is also on the ship and at, with his dying breath, uh, Heimdall decides to send Hulk to Earth, I suppose, to warn everyone else. Um, so so Hulk is you know, rainbow bridged off to, to Earth. Thor, uh, basically after Thanos gets the gem from Loki, kills Loki, he destroys the Asgardian ship and uh, Thor is left to, to float in space. Yeah, and I don't, I don't really remember why he's spared. I mean, Thanos just seems to like occasionally... And very conveniently be like, eh, I'm just going to move on to the next thing without bothering to finish you off. That was something I yeah. wondered about a lot. It would have been easy for him to just eliminate people quickly, especially if he ever used weapons. All he ever does is punch people out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I wonder part of it, and this is important. I mean, I think we really need to talk about Thanos, the character, and Thanos' motivations. But um, he, you know, he, uh, unlike most villains who wanted to destroy the entire universe, uh, Thanos only wants to destroy half the universe. All right. Well, since the movie starts with Thanos, let's talk about him. He is a really interesting villain. He's unlike in many of these movies, he's a pretty significant character in the story. He doesn't just show up to be mean once in a while. You actually know something about his his motivations and his, his past. I would argue that he is like the lead and main character in this movie. Like in retrospect, this is basically a movie about Thanos where he gets pretty much the only like he gets the most substantive character arc in the movie or the most character development. Although I wish it were more of an arc and instead it just feels to me like we slowly come to understand him over the course of the movie rather than kind of understanding him from the beginning and then seeing how that interacts with everything else to change him. I don't know that he changes so much as we slowly understand who he is. That's true. But I do think, I mean, the only other character that I think really has an arc in this film is, um, and this was a nice surprise, was was Gamora, the uh, character from Guardians of the Galaxy. and Played by Zoe Saldana. 
Right. Yeah. Um, and and she's great in it. Um, and I do I do think that the interaction between the two, which we'll of course get into, uh, I actually thought like you know I it was impossible really to give like any other character uh, like a real story, and so I think each of them really gets you know moments. I think you know there is like some I think pretty consequential consequential box checking. Um, you know, especially some of the things that happened to, to Thor and Iron Man. But, um, you know, for the most part, the real, you know, story is just Thanos and, and, uh, Gamora. Um, it's true that Thanos does not change. I do think, I mean, what changes is that we, I don't think we ever sympathize with him, but we, you know, sort of begin to understand what kind of conflicted, uh, and like warped figure he ultimately is, um, and I think I, – I don't know that, like, it makes him at all sympathetic. It just makes him confounding and, and, I, and I guess just interesting in a way that the villains in these films almost never have been. I mean, a part of that is just Josh Brolin's voice performance is really mm-hmm. excellent. Um, I didn't recognize who who it was. I didn't know. I guess has he's done. Has he been done the voice in every one of the movies? Or? Yeah. So back to the first Avengers, he showed up at the end of the – uh, you know, in one of the post credits or mid credit sequences at at the end of the Avengers. But outside of Josh Brolin just being a good actor, what is it about this character that's particularly compelling for a Marvel villain? I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with you know, basically his 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 uh his motivation. Um, he he wants to destroy half the universe to his admittedly kind of uh unexplored insight is that there is a resource shortage in the universe and that he must restore balance to the universe by, you know, killing half of its population. Right. He's a Malthusian. He is a Malthusian. Uh, And he's very insistent that it's a randomly chosen half, right? He has this kind of obsession with the fairness of just of a a random selection. Yeah. And actually this is, um, I I just, I'll get dorky for a second, but this is a A second. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're talking about, you know, like levels of dorkiness, Uh, but you know, in the comic books, uh, in the comic books, I think he's more of a zealot. He and, it, and it's slightly more like almost um, religious than it is here. Um, you know, in the comic books, he he worships and has maybe like a kind of romance with um, the manifestation of death. I think it's 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 she, she's either called Death or Lady Death, but basically he wants to destroy half the universe as like a sort of a romantic gest- gesture, which is you know maybe deliciously evil, but I think less interesting. I think here, what's interesting is that. While he's a kind of zealot, he uh, there is a certain rationalism to what he wants to do. Not that it's not that it makes sense. Not that like perhaps in like seeking this glove that can you know do anything. Maybe like he would. It's it's weird that he didn't come to the conclusion then of killing everyone. He could just like double their food supply. Uh, but that said, I think his what he wants to do does have grounding in both like what seems like. Uh, slightly coherent thinking as well as his real experience, which is that, you know, we learned that he warned his own planet that, you know, they were doomed because of their population. Uh, and, uh, and then because his words were not heeded, his, his, uh, his planet Titan was, uh, you know, was somehow destroyed or came upon ruin. Yeah. I mean, it, he, he strikes me as um, somewhat of a villain in the, the Killmonger mode, you know, um, similar to Eric Killmonger in, um, the Black Panther movies where he like you could almost think maybe he's right or he's like a too radical version of 
um, something that could be right. And, and so that worked for me. And then over the course of the movie, you come to understand that he is like, he is this character who has a traumatic past, um, you know, somewhat similar to Killmonger in that sense too, that, that kind of made him the twisted uh, person he is today. In a weird way, the person I was thinking of with, with his, with regard to his model of good governance was Paul Ryan. <laughs> like he has this completely wrong headed and evil idea, but he's kind of, he sort of has an idealistic fervor about it. He's not one of those. He's not the Joker. He doesn't just want to watch the world burn, right? I mean, he, he has an ideology behind it, which is utterly wrong headed and cruel, but it's not for the sake of cruelty that he's doing it. He sees it in some way as being for the sake of kindness. Right. And then I think what sort of deepens that is that he has he does have you know actual attachments in his life he has uh well he has two adopted daughters one of which he's very happy to torture and the other the other of whom is is gamora who it, it turns out he does in fact love and uh and ultimately will sacrifice um when his mission and uh i guess his adopted family coming come in conflict he has to to make a choice yeah, sacrifice is a really big thing in this movie. We're going to get to a lot of moments where somebody has to choose and sacrifice. And there's other moments where characters come down philosophically against sacrifice, right? I forget who it is who says we don't trade lives and then that gets yeah. quoted later on. But in fact, well, there's quite a bit of life trading that does happen. Obviously, that's Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> and who does he say it to? Um, I think uh, he, maybe he says it to the Vision. So, you know, one of the Infinity Stones is in the foreheads of one of the characters, the Vision, who is an android who was created in the last Avengers movie, Age of Ultron. Played by um, Paul Bettany. Right. Played by Paul Bettany. Um, he has the um, the Mind Stone in his forehead. And they know ultimately Thanos is going to be coming to Earth or Thanos' minions, who we should also get to, will come to Earth and try to remove it from him uh, to pop into the Infinity Gauntlet, which is Thanos's glove, which has sort of a little holes for all the stones and uh, is what he wants to use to uh, kill half of the life in the universe. Right. Once he pops each of these little cheesy stones into his specially made glove, he will have all the power. Um, All right. We haven't even gotten to any of our heroes yet, though, and we have like 15 of them to check off at least. So let's get to um, planet Earth and the first people that we meet there after the Hulk, as you said, Jonathan, is is ordered to um, shoot through space and land in the lair of Doctor Strange, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who has like it, just an incredibly sweet apartment in New York. I guess it's not <laughs> technically his apartment; it's like some sanctum where they protect the stone or whatever. But uh, mostly, I would just like to live there. And so, yeah, I, I guess at uh, Doctor Strange's sanctum is that what they call it, John? I'm going with lair. Lair, uh, <laughs> or maybe bat, only bat evil cave. people have lairs. <laughs> Has, um, wait, quick question about Doctor Strange. Has he been in the series before and I've missed it, or is this his first Oh, time? man, Dana, he got his own movie. Oh, he did? <laughs> yes, called no. Doctor Strange. It's pretty good. Yeah, that was one of the good ones. You should see it. Yeah, I think I think you might like it. I, also, you're a Cumberbatch. Uh, I wouldn't say, uh, 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 what is it, Cumber Cumberbitch? I, I, <laughs> I, I don't suspect you identify as a Cumberbitch, but you're a Cumberbatch fan, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. And he his was one of the funnier and more interesting characters in the movie. So, yeah, I will, maybe I'll go back and fill that hole in. So the Hulk goes falling through the apartment of Doctor Strange, and uh, and he lands there to deliver the news that Thanos is on his way. And uh, and who else is around? Uh, Iron Man uh, is there. He has to like stand up Pepper Potts, aka or, or, you know Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, and run off to try to save the universe. And then you gotta kind of get the battle of the goatees between Doctor Strange and uh, Tony Stark, who really can't stand each other. Right? Has I that mean, been there's established a lot before of... that they can't? 
Uh, I think this is the first time they've met. Yeah, they've um, never met before. And there's a lot of that in this movie. I mean, later we get Thor versus Star-Lord. You get kind of like all the alpha males. I mean, most of these characters are alpha males, let's be honest. But the, the, they take a lot of the most alpha male-ish characters and they put them in a in a room together with each other to kind of fight and, uh, you know, have a little bit of a pissing contest. A quick point about that pepper pot scene at the very beginning. There's a sort of a little romantic scene between uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow. I believe that that may be the only extended interaction between a human and a super person. Like, I think this is a real problem with this movie is that there are so many superheroes to jam in because it's big, this big, you know, synergetic convergence event that there's very little sense of the people on the earth that they're trying to save. And I think Pepper Potts might be practically the only one of them who isn't just a generic, you know, service person or passerby in the street. Yeah, I think this movie could have used, you know, a, uh, a, a happy, for example, I believe that's the name of John Favreau's character who serves that purpose in a lot of these movies. He's just kind of like the goofy guy who like drives the taxi cab or the the limo, I guess. <laughs> so no, maybe not that normal, but um, yeah, it could have used that kind of character, maybe. I have another question too about this early setup. So there's this this big establishing of the fact that. Cap and Tony, right? Tony Stark and Captain America are on the outs, and w- will they or will they not make up and, and and come back together in order to save the universe? And I didn't see Civil War, so I'm not sure what their big problem is. What was their falling out about? Uh, it's it's like almost too complicated, but basically, but Captain America just doesn't seem like a guy who would hold grudges. It must have been something pretty bad. So, uh, yeah, basically, a few things happened. Um, the basically there was a an international accord that was passed, so all the superheroes had to register, um, I guess, with with their own government and be sort of, um, you know, sanctioned superheroes. And Tony Stark wanted all the superheroes to sign, and Captain America didn't, uh, and so that caused a rift. And some half of the superheroes became fugitives. Uh, but and he's then such think- a rules guy. Why would he not want to sign an international treaty? He just seems like he'd be very rules following in that way. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm asking for motivation. What What am yeah. I thinking? Well, yeah, then... I don't know. I, I think I think that he. I think Captain America feels that his um, duty is to like a uh, uh, like to a all higher, mankind, a, a higher patriotism, and not necessarily the uh, whatever the concerns of like the UN Security Council in one moment are. Um, and then and then more deeply, it turns out not that this movie gets into it at all. Uh, that uh, Bucky, who was um, Captain America's buddy in World War II, who then became the Winter Soldier. Uh, it's revealed in that movie that he killed Iron Man's parents, and then Iron- so then Iron Man Tony Stark is mad at Captain America because Captain America knew but didn't tell him, um, and that sort of uh, that sort of causes their final rift at the end of that movie. To me, that was a, an opportunity. Why I ask about it is that was a really an opportunity for a dramatic moment in this movie that was just left on the table. I don't understand why you would plant over the course of several movies this major falling out between two of the most beloved and major characters in this group. And then even set up at the beginning of this movie, oh, if they could just call each other. And he's got his flip phone out, Tony Stark does, and is about to call Captain America. But then, of course, there's the invasion of Thanos of New York, and it ends up getting called off. And I don't know why you wouldn't just have that phone call happen. It would be a possible character development moment that this movie needs desperately. Well, we have one more movie. Right. 
Right. This movie was originally called Avengers of Infinity War Part One, which is like one of the most hilarious movie titles of all time. <laughs> I think Part One of Infinity. Um, yeah. I mean, this movie just doesn't have enough time for any of that stuff. I mean, another example of that is uh, the Hulk and uh, Scarlett Johansson's character, Black Widow, had this big, like, tragic love story in the last Avengers movie, Age of Ultron. And here they're finally reunited and they exchange, like, a total of three words or something like there's like a knowing glance and there's a beat but that is that is you know those five seconds are the most time you get to kind of uh become reinvested in their love story and and feel something for a second but this movie just has way too many people that it has to like have has too many action figures that it wants to bash together yeah i mean it's like the screenwriters are traffic cops just directing people to you know not crash into each other and that was another moment i was really waiting for when when you know bruce and and black widow see each other again i'm thinking oh great so they're setting up some moment where they're going to have this deep conversation about what it all meant and of course that never happens at all and as somebody who likes these movies if at all only for the character moments i found that a big flaw in this movie. I mean, if, if the fights are your favorite part of Marvel movies, this is going to be one of your favorite ones. I was keeping a tally in my notes <laughs> of how many just big action scenes there were. Not just somebody punching somebody else out, but like large, orchestrated, you know, multiple cars flying through the air, whatever, war in Wakanda. And I lost count at about seven, but I think I'm sure it got up to 10 or 11. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, basically this is a movie with like no sort of like quiet, ruminative, uh, you know, late second, early third act, right? I mean, basically, it's just sort of like pound, 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 pound. Uh, and maybe based on like who they take off the table and leave on the table, some of those character moments are being saved for the next movie. But I think you're right. If we sort of just like consider this thing on its own, uh, it just kind of, it's just like a a lot coming at you all at once, all the time. And the only character moments are, are jokes instead of like, sort of emotional beats, we get funny beats. Um, and like, that's what we get. And that's what they give us in order to show us some personality. Yeah. And I think the jokes in this movie are generally pretty good. I mean, it's, it's, it's much darker than the typical um, Marvel movie. And yet it still manages to, you know, sneak in a couple jokes per scene. And in particular, I think it's, it's really good. This is sort of frustrating as a critic in some ways, but it, it's really good at anticipating what your criticism will be and then making a burn like making the same burn as good or better than you would. So for example, Thanos, we haven't talked about what he looks like, I don't think, but he looks extraordinarily silly. He is <laughs> purple. He has some weird like stone goatee on his chin that somebody described as looking like a car catcher. I think this was Stephanie Zuckerich. <laughs> we have a whole post of ev- all of the descriptions of Thanos from the various reviews. Oh, I, know. I didn't think of his chin as being like an outgrowth. I thought that was just the flesh of his chin was sort of ridgy. I didn't it's think con- of it as a beard. It's confusing. I mean, every, I think most people think of it as a goatee and yet it's not hair. So what the fuck is it? In fact, there's stubble on it. When you see close-ups of him that I oh, love God. this, there's like there's stubble within the cracks, which makes you imagine the razor, like the scalloped razor that he would have to use to stay clean shaven. That's just this is just how people look on on Titan. It's, yeah, you're right. You're body shaming. What's wrong with being a mob? Well, so the movie. It's not just me though. It's also I think it's Chris Pat, Pratt, Star Lord's character, who refers to him both as having like a testicle for a chin or something, uh, which is like a pretty good burn. That is exactly what he looks like. And to just at some point refers to him by the name Grimace. Uh, which is all he does in the movies. It, um, so it's it's very good at, at kind of those self-critiques. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. Well, Forrest, you had the excellent idea of structuring our discussion stone by stone, because otherwise, if we try to go through either chronologically or superhero by superhero, we will be here for infinity. So do you want to just just take it stone by stone? You seem to have taken notes in that in that direction. Yeah, I think I can get us moving pretty quickly through the stones. So I think we've been here like 30 minutes and we've talked about the power stone, which Thanos got off screen off screen and the space stone, which he gets in the first few minutes. We have talked about the mind stone, which is on Vision's head, um, but which will be the last one that he goes for. So left, we have the reality stone, which is um, on this. I don't know if you'd call it a planet, John, it's just like this area called nowhere, this place in space that we've seen in the Guardians of the Galaxy um, movies. And there it's with this dude called the Collector, who's played by Benicio del Toro, who uh, is grossly underused by these movies. He just like acts vaguely offbeat and has crazy white hair, but is uh, killed in this movie. Uh, I think we are under to understand. And um This part is like a little bit mind bending. My sense is that Thanos, uh, we've we eventually realized that Thanos has already obtained the reality stone again off screen. And everything that we see for the first like five or 10 minutes of this sequence is actually just like a hallucination that he has projected. Is this correct? Did you? Is this how you guys understood it? Uh, no, yeah. not at all. Oh wow! I guess I wasn't watching. Well, it right. <laughs> so if you recall, like they show up and and then they actually manage to uh, uh, Gamora, the Zoe Saldana character, actually manages to kill Thanos, or so we think, because then like everything sort of evaporates oh, yeah, away, right, right, and right. Thanos reveals that he already has the stone, and that's how we learn what the reality stone does, which is just like you can change everyone's perception of what's going on. Oh, I thought he had created his own double, but okay, same basic idea. He fakes them out that they have killed him when. In fact, they haven't. Right. But yeah, they he's... being they being we haven't established who goes to nowhere to get the stone. It's it's the Guardians of the Galaxy gang, right, appearing. And to me, this is one of the most the biggest tonal clunky <laughs> sort of parts of the movie yeah. is that is that we're trying to incorporate essentially a spoof of the Marvel Universe into the Marvel Universe. And there's these interactions between the two of them because Thor, who we last saw floating through space after having been hurled off of whatever planet it was by Thanos ends up by pure chance anywhere in the universe he could have he could have ended up but he slams into the windshield of the ship of the Guardians of the Galaxy crew right I mean this is another I I agree it's jarring but it's another case where like the movie kind of anticipates that criticism and then makes it into a joke where like what what ha- the way we realize that we're heading towards the the sort of tonal universe of the Guardians of the Galaxy is that this uh what it, it's like a 70s funk song by the sp- the rubber band called man. Rubber band man. It like fades in, and you, and I just like you know every, the audience laughs because they immediately know that like retro seventies or eighties or whenever it is funk must mean the guardians, and then the the title along the bottom of the screen just says space, which was a good joke. <laughs> and so in the ship, in the guardian ship, we have um, Chris Pratt's character, Star Lord, right? Or his his name is Quill, Peter Quill, his actual yeah, both, name. Yeah. Uh, Gamora, Zoe Saldana that we've already talked about, the space raccoon guy voiced by Bradley Cooper, who I've always found an annoying character and he continues to be annoying in this movie, Aww. and uh, and Drax, who I love, the the 
very sort of dopey, um, hyper-tattooed Dave Bautista character. Oh, and you're forgetting uh, not baby Groot, but now teenaged Groot, which I don't know if you want to briefly describe him, John. Oh, uh, yeah, and also there's also Mantis. Um, but right. yeah, so, so so Groot is the uh, the tree thing who is voiced, uh, hilariously voiced, even though he only has one line of dialogue that he repeats over and over in different inflections. But he, he's voiced by Vin Diesel. Uh, in, in the first uh, Guardians movie, he was a adult uh, space tree thing. Uh, then he died and came back as a baby tree thing in the second Guardians movie. Now he is a, uh, a, a moody teenage tree thing. Uh, still voiced, I think, by Vin Diesel. Uh, and, then, and then the last member uh, is a new character from the second Guardians movie, uh, Mantis, uh, who's played by uh, Palm Clementiev. And she's sort of uh, an empath who can uh, sense and, and to some degree control what others are feeling. We should maybe at least give Vin Diesel credit for voicing Groot in every language in which these movies appear, as far as I can tell. So there's like there's a great supercut that people, if they haven't seen it, should look up online. That's just uh, Vin Diesel saying, like, yo soy Groot, and things <laughs> like that over and over again. <laughs> just we Groot. Uh, anyway, so that was the reality stone. I think we should probably keep moving. Uh, John, do you want to take the soul stone? Yes, the soul stone. So, um, uh, um, you know, leading up to this movie, every single, uh, stone, you know, made an appearance in, in one of the movies or at least, or maybe in several of the movies. And then, uh, sort of, you know, leading people to speculate, you know, how Thanos would collect it and so on. The one stone that never appeared was the soul stone. Um, but we learn, uh, we, we learn that the one person who knows the location of the soul stone is Gamora. Gamora, uh, is the adopted daughter of Thanos. We get some backstory in which we learn how she was adopted, which is to say it happened after Thanos committed genocide on her planet. Uh, you know, classic, classic tale. Uh, but oh, she, dad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, at, at some point, uh, Thanos, ta- uh, you know, gave her the task of, of finding the Soul Stone. Um, you know, later she, in the Guardians movie, the first Guardians movie, she would rebel against Thanos and join with the heroes. But in this film, we learn early on that she knows where the Soul Stone is, and then she asks Chris Pratt, "Should it come to pass that Thanos has his hands on her, he should kill her?" Not for the last time in this movie, Peter Quill will not do the thing that will stop Thanos from getting what he wants. Uh, he can't do it. He can't kill Gamora. And Thanos, after getting the Reality Stone, you know, hops through space uh, away from them uh, with Gamora uh, and takes her back with him to his to his ship. The, though, to his credit, he does try. So I, I'm remembering now that this is how we learn uh, the, the reveal about the whole Reality Stone and how Thanos is distorting reality and so on, because Peter Quill actually does try to uh, shoot... Gamora, as he has promised to do, but what comes out is just bubbles. Like, it's just like a bubble gun. Um, which which makes me realize that, so it must not be that Thanos only can control perception with the Reality Stone. He can just, like, control all of reality within a set area, I guess? Yeah, it, it's not clear how long the effects of it stick, because at, at one point he basically turns Drax and Mantis into Legos, but then when he leaves, their bodies reform. Uh, but but anyway, Thanos takes Gamora back to his his ship, where um, she lies and refuses to reveal the location of the Soul Stone, but then it turns out that uh, her sister Nebula is already in Thanos' hands. He's been torturing her, and out of that, he gets the location. So they go to this planet, which is, looks pretty barren, and then uh, at the top of a mountain is the supposed location of the stone. 
So Thanos and Gamora go up the mountain, uh, which has a sort of, um, you know, Stonehenge vibe to it, I guess. Um, and then there they find, I guess, the, the keeper of the Soul Stone, who, as it turns out, is, is the Red Skull. Um, and John, I need your explanation here. I, all I recall is them saying something about how, like, it was the will of the Infinity Stone that he be exiled on that planet or something. Yeah, I mean that makes no sense, but uh, but but, <laughs> but is yeah. that really all there is to it? I mean, I I guess if well we're spoiling. So um uh the Red Skull in the first Captain America movie had the uh Tesseract. He had the Tesseract. Um at the end of the movie, I think, and I haven't seen this movie in like 7 years. Uh he tries to do something with the Tesseract and it basically ends up like you know uh, zapping him out of reality, and I, and I guess where he ended up is uh, on this planet. Yeah, Vormir. Um, so basically, it's his job to tell Thanos that yes, here's the Soul Stone, but in order to get it, you're going to have to uh, trade, as he puts it, a soul for a soul. Um, and I, I guess it has to be a, a soul that he that he that he truly loves. So um, as it turns out, though he is is cruel and evil and bent on destroying half the universe. Uh, he does love Gamora, and and then in this scene, he shoves her off a cliff. She dies, and then the scene kind of fades out. But then when we next see him, he has the Soul Stone. I'm not actually sure we learn what the Soul Stone does if it does anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I guess don't, you just need I to complete the so set. Either. Yeah, right. Maybe that's why they save it for last, so that he doesn't have to like reveal any powers. Yeah. Um. And I guess that that's five. So then that takes us. To the Mind Stone. And how does this all well, relate I'm to... I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, yeah. So I, I didn't mention it before. We did already talk about the Time Stone, which is the one that was with Doctor Strange. And I think... Oh, right. So he actually gets the Time Stone next. And it's a similar deal where... What? So all of the Guardians of the Galaxy plus Spider-Man, who is essentially hitched a ride on a spaceship, uh, plus... Iron Man, who was hitched a ride on that same spaceship, plus Doctor Strange. Strange, who has been captured on that spaceship by Thanos's minions. Who, John? You said you want to talk about. I don't... Oh, I really want to talk about the. Minions. All right, T- this is. I feel like this is your your shining moment to talk about the minions, <laughs> who I have basically zero interest in, aside from the fact of uh, their hilarious, like hilariously over the top names. Uh, yeah, their names are amazing, and I just want to say all of them. Uh, <laughs> so, so Thanos um, has four minions. He sends them to Earth in his place to uh, get the stones that are on Earth. Um, their names are uh, uh, they're called the Children of Thanos, and their names are Cull Obsidian, uh, Ebony Maw, Proxima Midnight, and Corvus Glaive. Um, wait, wait, Ebony Maw is an M A W. Yeah, <laughs> so good. Yeah, the, I. Those are, I, I want to like name all of my future children after these characters. I only realized after the movie that like Proxima Midnight is also played by Carrie Coon, who is, you know, a, at this point, a fairly well-known actress for things like Fargo. Yeah, those are really wasted parts. I have to agree. Until yeah. I heard those names just now, I, I did not care a single whit about those characters. They're just, you know, like weird-faced executors of the will of Thanos. Yeah, it's really a shame that they don't use the names more in the movie. But uh, so, Yeah, so- I'm not even sure they use them at all. 
Um, so let's get to that, the flying donut crowd. The people, this is like a whole big subplot of the movie that I kept forgetting about. I mean, this movie takes so long to get back to chunks of, of exposition because it has other chunks to complete that one of the things I kept forgetting existed was the flying donut. And one thing that I never forgot existed but kept wanting to go back to was Wakanda. We haven't even touched on it yet. I mean, yeah. especially after the huge success of Black Panther and sort of what a what a cultural touchstone it immediately became. I couldn't believe how little time this movie spent on Wakanda. Yeah, I mean, in their defense, like... Uh, this movie had entirely been filmed and completed by the time Black Panther came out. So they didn't know, you know, perhaps they should have anticipated how big of a deal Black Panther would become. Certainly a lot of people were expecting that it would become a huge deal from the moment that they signed on, you know, Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan. Um, But this Black Panther came out two months ago and then they moved up the release date of this so that there was only, you know, two months in between them. So I wouldn't be surprised if they like went to the cutting room floor and found every single piece of footage they had of Wakanda and were like, shit, we got to put this in. Uh, But that's you don't get a ton of it. But so so this gang, they're flying donut. the Flying Donut Gang, and that's what Robert Downey Jr. nicknames the uh, the spaceship that they've kind of hijacked, right? And are are trying to fly to get the what stone? <laughs> You're way well, beyond me at this point. It's because Doctor Strange has the time stone and he's been captured on the Flying Donut. So now they're trying to prevent Thanos from getting the time, the time stone, which is the second to last stone. So they're not going anywhere in particular. They're just trying to avoid being captured, essentially. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah, I mean, I think they once th- there is one of... Uh... Thanos's henchman is on the flying donut with them, and then they sort of dispatch him, uh, as they know it, in the manner of uh, uh, how they get rid of the alien in uh, one of the aliens movies. Right, which is to say they blow a hole in the spaceship's uh, hull, and he gets kind of vacuum sucked out into space. That was an effective joke, I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought so, too. Yeah. And but basically, they decide, okay, we've got one of the stones, uh, but rather than like going back to Earth, where we don't want Thanos to go, why don't we you know, go to Thanos somewhere else and, and fight him there. Um, it, you know, I think they reason that's what he won't expect, uh, as heroes always do. Um, but uh, yeah, so Doctor Strange has the Time Stone, um, which he got in his own movie. Uh, and so they go to Titan, which is Thanos's planet. Um, this group of um, uh, Doctor Strange, Iron Man, and Spider-Man meet up with the members of the Guardians of the Galaxy that aren't with Thor. Thor has gone off separately with a... Rocket, Raccoon, and Groot. Um, so the rest of the Guardians, which is uh, Peter Quill, Mantis, Dra- and Drax, who no longer have Gamora because she's with Thanos. Sorry, this is all confusing. Uh, but they, they, they gather on Titan in anticipation of Thanos arriving where they will perhaps use the Time Stone to defeat him. And, um, you know, they, they sort of hatch a whole plan. Uh, to take on Thanos. And if I recall correctly, that's the part of the movie that's intercut with Wakanda, right? That's where the basic two stories you're cutting in between is them fighting him on that planet and everything that's happening in Wakanda, which we haven't even gotten to yet. Yeah, pretty much. I think it starts by intercutting and then everything ends on Wakanda because that's where the last stone is. But I guess we should just, you know, to quickly summarize how Thanos gets the time stone, they come up with this, all of our heroes come up with this elaborate plan to essentially restrain Thanos and then um, pull off his glove, the Infinity Gauntlet. And this is like a pretty good, pretty clever fight sequence, I think. Like the the various um, schemes they come up with for tricking Thanos and kind of coming at him from all directions at once um, are are pretty entertaining. Um, But And they're about to succeed when Star-Lord finds out that he has killed Gamora and basically 
uh, he can't restrain himself and starts attacking Thanos, which wakes him up from the sleep. Star-Lord wakes Thanos from the sleep that Mantis has put him in, and then uh, I guess there is a really significant part here, which is that Doctor Strange says he's glimpsed like all 14 million possible futures <laughs> from this, this one This was a really, point. really fun special effect. I just have to note here that one moment when I absolutely loved a goofy CGI effect was when Doctor Strange travels forward in time, as you say, to foresee all the possible outcomes of their plan. And uh, for a minute, he becomes like an Indian many-armed god, which is right. hilarious, just seeing Benedict Cumberbatch floating in the lotus position with many arms. And then he turns into a bunch of hymns and there's a whole sky full of Dr. Strange's floating and just the idea that he can go forward in time and foresee the possible outcomes is, is a really great superhero power. I love it. Yeah, you got to see Dr. Strange because it's just all trippy dippy hippie stuff like that. Um, like vaguely Eastern mysticism that's really just like an American's understanding <laughs> of Eastern mysticism in the 1960s or 70s which there's is another when the character fun effect was created. that his cloak kind of can be personified yeah. without him. Does, does that happen in his movie? Yes. I love his, his just his cloak as a character. Yeah, um, um, I think it's worth very briefly saying that um, if you love like the really trippy late 60s uh, uh, comic book art of Steve Ditko, who drew Doctor Strange at the time, the movie like, channels it in like a really great way. And that is like the number one reason why I, I endorse that film. Yeah, you guys have sold me. If there's one of these I'm going to go back and watch, it will be the Doctor Strange movie. Yeah, so he's seen all 14 million possible futures, and he says there's precisely one in which, what, they they win? Yeah, basically this, they have a successful outcome in one right. universe. So this becomes very important, important because, uh, both because of what happens at the end of the movie. I think that, in retrospect, that line actually takes, like, all suspense out of the cliffhanger at the end of the movie, because we essentially already know that Doctor Strange has foreseen the future and that they are going to win. And while that is reassuring, I think it does kind of uh, lower the stakes extremely dramatically. Um, and we, I think we essentially learned that they're on that one path in which they'll win because Doctor Strange, um, having seen the future, decides to just like give over um, his time stone in exchange for the life of Iron Man, uh, Tony Stark, who I think briefly we all think is going to die. Um, and that could have been a whole other version of the movie, um, but he's saved. I have to ask, Forrest, were you in the New York screening where at the moment you oh thought you thought Tony Stark was going to die, someone screamed, no! No! Yeah, somebody did like a full-on Luke Skywalker at the end of Empire Strikes Back. Just, okay, can I give you some backstory on that moment? And this is this is only... Yeah. This is only amusing as a complete side story to the movie, but do you know who that screamer was? Uh-uh. It was Kevin Smith, director of what? Clerks <laughs> and comic book nerd extraordinaire. <laughs> According to Stephen Witte, the, the critic yeah. for the New Jersey Star, I think, the Newark Ledger, I don't know, he's a New Jersey critic. He was sitting three rows behind Kevin Smith. And at that moment that you think Tony Stark is going to buy it on the planet Titan, um, and it, the movie really does set you up to believe that he might die. And yeah. several major characters have at that point. So it's seen and it's late in the movie. It seems right. logical it might be him. Well, anyway, it was Kevin Smith who was bellowing in protest. So I hope he felt better when it turned out to be a fake out. And there's a whole like metatextual element here where uh, Robert Downey Jr., who plays Iron Man, and Chris Evans, who plays Captain America, have for years basically been threatening to end their contracts with these movies. So the, the idea going into this movie was that probably one of them would die. I'm glad that uh, uh, we we named Kevin Smith for the record. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't. 
I guess it was plausible that he would like really believe it at that point. But part of me just feels like by the end of the movie, like you got to understand that these movies aren't really going to kill that many characters. This I quickly. really I cannot wait to get to the ending and who actually does die. But there's at least one more thread in the main part of the movie before we get to the Wakanda final fight sequence and, and who buys it and who doesn't, which is the small subplot of Thor going and getting a new Ugh. weapon, because, of course, his hammer was destroyed in Thor Ragnarok, his last movie. And so he needs to go about getting himself a new unbeatable weapon. And there's a really funny little side plot about that. Should we describe it? Yeah, with Peter Dinklage. Uh, uh, Fisher, I think you know about this character, so I think maybe you should take this one. Sure. So basically, um, I think in the last Thor movie, I think Thor kind of got torn to pieces in all kinds of ways. You know, he lost his hammer, he lost his eye. And I think, you know, one thing that... And his hair. And his hair. Um, And while this movie does not restore his hair, it does... uh, restore all the other parts which which i think is a clue to sort of like how seriously how serious it is about uh you know really dismantling these heroes but you know so thor gets his eye back in a really funny callback to the guardians movies uh and then he realizes that he needs some kind of super weapon to take on thanos and so he goes to that uh, dana has the planet written down i can't even remember i don't know is it Niveladir? N- yeah it's, <laughs> okay. ne- it's, it's Niveladir, which That's is all like a i sort can supply like, is that i wrote down the nonsensical planet names right Niveladir is like a sort of cosmic uh forge where i guess space dwarves you know make weapons for asgardians and um we learned that thanos too visited Niveladir. uh he had them make the gauntlet. He he then, I guess, put out the small star at the center of it that powers the forge. Uh, but anyway, uh, so Thor and Rocket and Groot arrive at Niveladir where they look for uh, – they look for the dwarves. There's only one of them left and it's a dwarf named uh, Etri or Atri um, who uh, is played, uh, I think – kind of delightfully and surprisingly by Peter Dinklage. Um, Totally agree. Really, it was late in the movie. I was really tired, but he really made me laugh. And we should mention that an element of space dwarves is that they're huge in comparison to humans, at least. Maybe for their planet, they're dwarves. But so to see a very large CGI Peter Dinklage is, I'm sorry, just a good joke. Plus his voice, his voice is just fantastic. He's just got this great deep rumble that's so perfect for the the great weapon forging dwarf. Yeah, for sure. Um, So basically they they go there and... um, Thor has to, they have to reignite a burnt out sun in order to power the forge, which uh, they do somehow. I guess I'm not really clear on how they do it, but it it involves Thor nearly dying because he has to uh, hold open a window so that the sun can power the forge. Um, And then, uh, but finally they get it to work. They, they, they forge the ax. And then in the last moment, Groot, um, Cuts off his own arm because he can he can do that and regrow a new one and that becomes the handle of the axe, and then uh, so then we learn in the scene that um, the the axe can channel the Bifrost. The Bifrost is like the interdimensional or cosmic uh, bridge from the Thor movies. So in that basically they 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 reforge Thor's hammer. They make a new hammer and then he transports um, himself, Rocket and Groot down to Wakanda where this sort of great climactic battles happening. Right. And so and we we didn't even talk about the fact that all the New York gang, right, has has made their way to Wakanda. So that would include Scarlet Witch, played by Elizabeth Olsen, who is now the girlfriend of, of Vision, the uh the digital being. I don't know how to describe him, but the uh the guy who's sort of Android a, a of bunch it. of layered digital intelligences that have forged into this one being. He can only have the jewel removed from his forehead, whichever stone that is, by uh this this special surgical procedure that of course 
only exists in Wakanda with their advanced science. So we only get to revisit Wakanda, the land of the Black Panther, in the last third of the movie or so. And uh, and the two suspenseful things being cut between there are basically the surgical procedure being performed on Vision by Shuri, the science whiz sister of the Black Panther, and uh, and the rest of the gang taking on Thanos's army who has now landed on planet Earth and is invading Wakanda. Am I getting this right? Yeah. And then and then so it ends up being this huge battle that kind of is undermined, I think, when Thor shows up with his super powerful hammer that seems to be like really more powerful than either of the armies combined, which I I just want to pick nits about the Thor Space Forge sequence, which is this movie is too long and you easily could have cut that part, which probably takes 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden this movie would be like a tight two hours rather than an overlong two and a half hours, or at least it would be close closer to it. Second of all, I just don't understand like if this new hammer is so much more powerful. Or axe, isn't it an axe? It's an axe. Yeah, I, I don't know. What, how, you should rule on that, John. Hammer axe. <laughs> uh, it's an axe. It has a name. I forget the name. Um, at this point, we're getting like pretty deep into the, the comic book mythos, but Right, it just seems nothing is off limits. It as as powerful as this hammer was before. This new axe seems so much more powerful. It's just like, why didn't you get this previously? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so like, I guess just to end that whole Wakanda sequence, once the once Thor shows up, the battle is pretty much settled until Thanos himself shows up, who seems to be the only thing more powerful than this axe. Yeah, I I mean, I have to say, I found that battle on Wakanda incredibly, for having been built up to for so long, it was just so dull. It was was really one of those, almost like the Lord of the Rings sequences where all you see is digitized armies from very far up, and only in a few scenes were there actual encounters between individuals that you could care about. Another huge setup, remember how I was saying earlier that there was a dramatic setup that was left on the table, right, between Captain America and Tony Stark? Another huge one is that it's set up early in the movie that Bruce Banner has lost his ability to convert into the Hulk, right? And so in this final battle sequence, he's not the big green hulk he's just normal bruce banner but he's inside this kind of super suit that i guess the wakandans gave him is that where he got it no so that's a suit that iron man designed essentially to be able to contain the hulk so in previous movies we've seen it as something that just like whenever they need to restrain the hulk this giant suit like attacks him and restrains him oh right yeah 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 but so now it's become what is it called john the Hulk. I think, it's, I think it's the Hulkbuster armor. Hulkbuster. Right, right. Right. Well, so, but now it's kind of become like his exoskeleton that he fights in, which is fine. That's actually a good dramatic setup, right? But then you need to have the moment where somehow Bruce Banner's anger takes over and he does convert or else he decides like, I'm never going to be the Hulk again. Instead, he just relies on the exoskeleton and it seemed like another opportunity for something cool to happen that would actually advance a character's growth and doesn't happen. Right. He continues to have performance anxiety, essentially. I assume that'll happen in... Uh, what used to be called Infinity War Part Two, and is currently without a title. It's a it's a great setup that Bruce Banner has forgotten how to how to change over, and he can't make himself do it. It's almost to me it was like a, an erectile dysfunction analogy. Yeah, that's what I mean by performance anxiety. Yeah, they totally make it like an impotence thing. So let's get to the ending because the ending really did, as I say, it kind of blew me away. And I was way more impatient with this movie than than you all were because, yeah, to me, it really was. I'm not crazy about these Marvel movies anyway, and I have missed too many to get all the character references and too many fights, whatever. But then suddenly, to my amazement, I was suddenly really moved, maybe not to the point of tears, but really genuinely moved by the last 10 minutes or so of the movie. So let's get into what happens at the end of the the battle for Wakanda. Um, so basically, um, eventually... Um, Thanos defeats the the group of heroes that are on his own planet, Titan. And after the heroes on Earth and Wakanda have defeated all of the 
the uh, the children of Thanos, and it appears that the battle is won. Thanos himself shows up, um, and sort of one by one, um, each of the heroes attacks him. He quickly dispatches them, and then he gets his hands on the Vision. Um, there, at this point, um, Vision has sort of you know decided he has to sacrifice himself. The only one we are told that who is powerful enough to kill him is the Scarlet Witch, his his girlfriend. Um, and that's because she's his girlfriend in a way, right? I mean, isn't it the idea that she's this empath too and she can only she has the connection with his mind where she can explode the stone or something like that? I, I took it to be that she's just that powerful, but I think it's possible that's true too. Because there's definitely a big setup that, you know, it's it's really hard for her to kill him, right? I mean, I, I mentioned this because right, it right. is one of the few moments in, in the movie where someone's prior relationship or kind of character has to do with the action. Right. I mean, I think it's, it's meant to be a total mirror of... The Peter Quill Gamora thing where Peter Quill also, you know, Peter Quill has to kill his girlfriend and Scarlet Witch has to kill her boyfriend, all of which mirrors this kind of this basically the central disagreement of this movie is whether or not they quote unquote trade lives. Right. Like it's basically a trolley problem. And and most of the Avengers are like, no, we don't intentionally kill anybody, even if, you know, by refusing to kill, we might lead to as much or more death. Whereas Thanos is like, no, I will just kill half the universe in order to save the remaining half. So we should say what happens, which is that that she kills him. Uh, yeah, so she so she kills him. And it seems like um, Thanos will have been prevented from completing the set and killing half the universe. But da-da-da, as it turns out, he has the time stone. So all he does is he rewinds you know, a sort of close, a nearby pocket of time by 30 seconds. Uh, Vision is, I guess, unkilled. He grabs the stone off of Vision, who it appears then dies again. And then Thor finally shows up. I don't know where he was 30 seconds earlier, but Thor finally shows up. He puts his new powerful axe into Thanos's chest. It appears that, you know, all is, all is done. Uh, everything is saved. And then Thanos says something like, you should have gone for my head. Why would going for his head have made any difference? Well, he would have been killed more quickly and he would have been unable to do what he then does, which is snaps his fingers, which I have to say, like the entire time they keep saying, oh, man, all Thanos has to do is snap his fingers and half the universe will die, which I thought of as like a sort of metaphor. Like it's as easy as snapping his fingers. (laughs) And it turns out, I guess, that like literally the code for destroying the half of the universe is snapping your fingers. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of nitpicky, but it struck me as funny. So, yes, Thanos destroys, he kills half of the universe, which includes half of the heroes in this universe, who I suppose we should now list off. But wait, but can we say first how they die and what it looks like when they die? It's a beautiful effect. It actually is a great... I think if it weren't for the effect, it wouldn't have been as moving as it was. So when he snaps his fingers, I mean, to me, it wasn't totally clear that he was going back in time, but I had to sort of figure it out No, he has already gone back in time in order to get the stone. Right. Now he has the stone. Now he snaps his fingers. So So there's no going back in the time Uh, when he snaps his fingers. Okay, but so after the the finger snap of death, what happens to the randomly selected half of the population that dies is that they sort of... um, turn into this this ash this kind of brownish ash and I feel like they away. kind of like blow away like dead leaves or right something. and they become I just I love that it's not a puff of smoke or yeah. it's it's this kind of mulch it's almost like they turn into you know like garden mulch and kind of drift away on the wind and there's a real sense with the slowness of the effect and seeing the body kind of gradually dissolve into this this brown matter that um 
that you just you see the actual loss and grieving of that of that person. It feels very permanent, even if they're all going to be brought back in part two. Yeah. And so the first one who dies, at least according to my notes, is T'Challa, which is the I have to say, like, they should not have done him first, I think, because I immediately knew there's no fucking way <laughs> that these movies are going to kill off the Black Panther after one movie for their single most, you know, successful standalone movie that just made over a billion dollars. Like, granted, they didn't know that ahead of time, but there's no way they're killing off uh, Black Panther. So, yeah, they kill off Black Panther, uh, Groot, Bucky who we haven't even well, we have hardly talked about. He's what he's called the White Wolf right now. That was kind of underused. Uh Scarlet Witch, Drax, the Empath, John. Star-Lord? Does he die? I can't remember. Does he turn yeah, into brown mold? Yeah, yeah, Star-Lord dies, so does Mantis. Doctor Strange is one of them and I think there's some a bit of uh there's a bit of pathos there because you know knowing the future, he also knew that he right. himself would 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 have to be sacrificed. Does Natasha make it? The Scarlet Johansson? She does. Character? And I think actually, I mean, maybe we should list them all. But um, I think you know, the, the last one, I think the last major one until the post credits that we haven't said is Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider-Man's one of them. So is Sam. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Uh, the Falcon. And so we're left at the end with only just Iron Man, Captain America, the Hulk, the Black Widow. Who else is still standing? I mean, there are still so many. <laughs> I, mean, I think I, I think consequentially, the ones that are left, uh, Nebula is still around. But I think I think consequentially, the ones that are left are actually, uh, luck as luck would have it, all of the core Avengers, which tells us that I think you know the next movie is actually going to be a much like tighter like Avengers qua Avengers movie. Yeah, and it, yes. and and there's a again like a little metatextual stuff we can bring in because there have been some set photos from Avengers Four, and they show the um, Battle of New York, the battle from the original Avengers movies, with all of the Avengers back there with um, their like original costumes on, and then I believe the Ant Man is also on set there and the Ant-Man being one of the only uh, new characters who is not killed in these movies, which, you know, I think there are lots of different ways we can interpret this. I think John, you would know best. My guesses having not read the comics were that, you know, the next movie is going to be either a time travel movie or a parallel universes movie um, or some spin on those. Uh, But I know this kind of thing has happened in the comics before. So you probably have a more informed guess. You know, I, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, so the, the, this story is based on the Infinity Gauntlet story, which was um, in the very early 90s. It was like a major Marvel crossover. And it was bas- it's basically the story here. You know, Thanos collects the stones and wants to kill off the universe. I, I think I failed in my research for this podcast. Uh, I meant to reread the series and I didn't. Um, what I remember, because I did read it uh, as a kid, probably a little bit, after it actually happened uh, is that Thanos in that series did succeed and he killed half the universe and half, half of the heroes disappear and then they somehow undo it. I, I would very much expect for something like that to happen uh, again, you know, not least because, you know, Spider-Man and Black Panther were among the ones who died. And of course they have planned movies. Uh, there's a third guardians of the galaxy, you know, movie coming and all of the guardians uh, are, are dead. Um, I think, you know, some kind of time travel in the fourth movie is a good bet. Some sort of hopping between, you know, realms of reality is probably also on the table. Um, You know, or maybe they just somehow get their, uh, 
hands on the gauntlet and unsnap that finger. <laughs> well, we should. There's, there's a couple clues in the stinger, which which we we will get to. But I have I have just one observation about the feeling of the end of this movie. I think this is why it really did affect me. Of course, as soon as you think of, of it as, as a part one, you can immediately snap right. your fingers and reverse that emotional effect too. But the end of this movie has a real note of failure and melancholy, and it was also just seems strangely, even if it's not deliberate, kind of appropriate to the Trump era. It just made me think of right. election night and just the disbelief that the bad guy won. Right. And uh, and this movie is really willing. I mean, for however temporary it may be, it is willing to sit with that mood. It's willing to be, you know, a, a huge Marvel blockbuster that ends on a really downer note. Yeah, I mean, that's I mentioned Empire Strikes Back early on. I think that's the best precedent uh, for this movie in the movies themselves um, in terms of like all time great dark cliffhangers. Um, and I was like legitimately chilled and disturbed and like spent some time like grappling with. Uh, whether I was just in a d- denial that people died and, and so on. And then the more, like, the farther I've gotten from the movie, the more that somber t- tone feels kind of phony to me. Yeah, like, I agree. those people aren't actually dead. We're grieving over nothing. <laughs> and in fact, you're you're doing exactly what they want by grieving because right. then you're going to buy the ticket for the next movie. Right. I mean, I, I imagine, like, there the question is, like, how many of them they'll be able to unkill, right? And some of them they might not be able to unkill. Like, will they be able to save Loki, who dies much earlier in the movie, I, I don't know. So I th- I think some of these deaths are real, but it's hard to m- I can't find myself mourning for anybody who died in this movie because the end of the movie made it so abundantly clear that there would, in fact, be resurrections again in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, no, you're right. It's not it's not a matter of, of actual loss. I think it's just I'm, I'm just even impressed that the movie was willing to send you out on, yeah. in, a, in a bad mood, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, I, I I imagine you guys saw had a similar experience in your screening in New York, but in DC, um, the theater was just like people were just like, you know, what the hell, or that's it, or it was just it was very jarring and like, and yeah, I think people were just uh, you know like you said, Dana, just sort of uh, stuck in their seats uh, and and just just stunned uh, after the ending. Yeah, and then they 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 managed to carry that as far as the mid credits because the mid credits there is no mid credit sequence, which is the the continuance of this somber tone, right? Instead, the title, everybody's waiting for it, and the logo for this Infinity War movie appears, and then it itself, like, blows away like dead leaves, just like all of those people. And then it's, like, I would say very slightly undone by the post-credits sequence, which, John, you should describe. I think I can just set it up, which is basically we have Nick Fury. He's in New York. We don't know exactly when this is taking place until um, people just start to disappear around him. So we realize, oh, this is what it actually looks like away from the superheroes, just like in New York when this great disappearance happens. And what, I guess Colby Smulders' character disappears, and then Nick Fury himself disappears. But he has managed to shoot off one, what, like, text message, pager, weird pictorial emoji message which is the logo for john uh captain marvel um so captain marvel is uh, a long-standing uh character in the marvel universe who has not appeared in these films basically captain marvel has like alien origins but but the most recent captain marvel in the comic books and the one that will in the movies seems to be based on is carol danvers uh, a woman from earth uh, who will be pre- played by Brie Larson in a movie next year. Um, 
But the character has, you know, some connection to outer space and some of the characters that have appeared in past movies, um, like some of the villains from the Guardians movies. And that character also traditionally, you know, sort of appears in some of the same stories as Thanos. I think what this is implying is that basically this character played by Brie Larson, Captain Marvel, um, is going to appear and help them defeat Thanos in some way. Um, I, I think, you know, there's a few interesting things we know about this. You know, the, so there's a Captain Marvel movie coming up. And it takes place in between this movie and the next Avengers movie, right? Actually, I think it's set in the nineties. Or, or I'm sorry, I think I it, remember, it I read comes it out. Set... What it, what I meant is, it, oh yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it will be released. Uh, I misspoke, but it'll be released between this movie and the next. Yeah, Avengers there's going to be two movies between uh, this movie and the next one. There's going to be an Ant Man movie this summer, um, and we don't really know what connection it has to this, but I'm sure there'll be something. And then there's a Captain Marvel movie, which, from what I've read, is going to be set in the nineties. Um, but clearly is going – and actually the Nick Fury character played by Samuel L. Jackson will be in that too. Uh, but I think clearly that's going to have you know some sort of role setting up the action of the next um, – of, of the next film. I'm most excited to see – I hope there's a little tiny bit of time spent in the post-Rapture world after half of the people have turned into bits of bark because I, would just, I just want to see what the, what the world would be like at that point and who – sort of how apocalyptic they're willing to go. It's basically the leftovers, right? Yeah, exactly. It's about the rapture. All right. We are now so far in the weeds that you can see nothing but weeds everywhere you look. There's just an infinite plane of weeds that we've been wandering through for some time. But at least I feel like I now have a grasp on um, on some of what flew over my head at the time during this movie. And uh, and it was fun discussing it with y'all. John, please come back and, and help us again. <laughs> be our be our, our cognitive crutch as we try to limp through the weeds on the next Marvel movie. I, I would be happy to. My only regret today is that we didn't have like 15 critics in the room to untangle this movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. As our produce- 34 different super critics. As our producer was saying, we've practically gotten to a real-time reproduction of the movie. Just one minute for every minute of the movie spent summarizing it Forrest thank you as well for um for coming in to help and spoil the Avengers thanks Dana and thanks to all of you for listening you can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed and if you like our show you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts and if you have any ideas for movies or TV shows you think we should spoil or any other feedback to share you can send it to spoilers at slate.com our producer is Daniel Schrader for Forrest Wickman and John Fisher I'm Dana Stevens thank you for listening and we'll talk to you soon All right. Well, that was not quite as long as a Marvel sequence of credits where you have to read the names of 400,000 digital compositors and stunt doubles. But let's imagine that you just sat through an incredibly long credit sequence. Here's the stinger. Jonathan, what else do you have for us for people who still want to dig yet deeper into Avengers Infinity War? Um, Well, I can share that much like the (laughs) Avengers at the end of uh, the first film, I did have something very close to shawarma today. (laughs) (laughs) But could you lift your hammer? Uh, Unclear. Uh, I had too much shawarma. I can't lift any hammers. John, you're working on a post. Tell us what the post is. Oh, that's true. Um, yeah, if uh, <laughs> if you're interested in uh, learning more about uh, the end of uh, of uh, Infinity War uh, and the stunning uh, uh, deaths of something like half the characters, uh, I'm going to have a post later this week on Slate getting into that, as well as some of the uh, uh, some of the breadcrumbs it leaves uh, for future films. Good. I I desperately crave that post, so I look forward to it. I mean, if you guys want, we could also do like a really funny post-credits scene. Okay. (laughs) The really funny version. How do I set it up? What what am I saying? (laughs) 
Like, what what are we saying? Well, John already set it up as really funny. (laughs) Yeah. um, John, what did you have in mind to make it really funny? Shit, I don't know. Um, (laughs) Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.